something that would have riveted my attention. I've been worrying about it the whole time because it was right after my shift. But this verse came to my mind and I couldn't shake it. And I started thinking about it and it just wouldn't go away. And you know, I realized that I, I think that's where God wants me to go. I think that's where I'm supposed to go in the Word. And so that's what I did. And so I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 with me. To set the stage, before we read, Abraham is 99 years old, Sarah's 89. They've been in the land of Canaan about 24 years. And it's probably been, it could have been up to 20 years since Lot separated from Abraham and moved his tents near Sodom. And we know, of course, he moved into Sodom at some point after that. So it's been a long time since that happened, but Abraham and and, uh, Sarah have been in the promised land in Canaan for 24 years waiting for God's promise that he made to be fulfilled. Now, um, we see here at the beginning of Genesis 18 that Abraham is sitting in the the door of his tent because during the heat of the day, and he sees three figures appear. And Abraham, being close to God, knew that this was the presence of God. Now, in the text, it appears that the presence of God was in all three individuals. It doesn't say they were God, but the presence of God was there in all three of them. And don't ask me to explain that, because I'm not going to. Pastor Larry totally uh, ditched on us last week on Melchizedek, so this week I'm not going to go into that. Let's just say the presence of what God was there and God appeared to Abraham, okay? Um, And so there we are, the presence of God. Abraham hosts them, he serves them food, then God tells them that one year from that time, Sarah would bear him a son. And by all appearance, that is the reason for the visit. But then this happens. And we begin reading in verse 16. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And Abraham stepped forward and said, Will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, you could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that God said to himself, say, you know, while we're in the neighborhood, let's take about take care of that little problem at Sodom. And I don't think he said something effective, well, before going to deal with Sodom, let's just stop by Abraham's tent for a bite to eat. No, these things were both intended to happen. And this, this time that God is speaking to Abraham and telling him what he is going to do 
is one of the reasons he came. Now, I have a few observations I would like to make. First of all, Abraham is very special to God. God has a purpose in telling Abraham his plans concerning Sodom. Now, I think about this and I think to myself, why even bring it up, God? You know, it's not like Abraham has to know this. Um, You know, when we tell people things, we immediately open up the subject for questioning and debate. Have you ever told your plans to someone who's close to you and they immediately said, why are you going to do that? Anybody ever had that happen? How many people are married here? Why are you going to do that? We don't tell our kids what we're going to do ahead of time, do we? That just leads to problems, you know? I know uh, we went off on a vacation. We took our kids to Seattle once for vacation. We didn't tell them until we were leaving that we were going, you know? It just opens up a can of worms sometimes. So here, when Moses wrote this account, though, he recorded God's reasoning as to why he should take Abraham into his confidence. Of course, God wasn't arguing with himself, trying to figure out, well, should I tell Abraham or shouldn't I? It kind of appears like it here. But when Moses wrote it, the purpose is for us to see why God did it. Okay, So in showing a conversation with himself, it shows us why it happened. Okay, um, So the purpose of God telling him is, first of all, that God has given the whole land to Abraham through his promise. Abraham was in a promissory sense the Lord of the land. That this major event of judgment was about to take place in the land that God had given him concerned him. And let's face it, it was only going to happen a few miles away. It's not like it was going to pass unnoticed. The second thing here is that God had chosen Abraham to be the father of a great nation and the nation through whom the whole world would be blessed. Okay? Abraham was the medium of blessing to the world. He would be the ancestor of the Son of God. This man was very important. And in that capacity, Abraham would also have an obligation both to God and to his descendants to teach them the way of the Lord so that they would live uprightly. His his descendants would receive what was promised to Abraham if they would serve God. And let's face it, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah would be an important teaching point to Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. The judgment poured out on the wicked people of the Jordan Valley would give credibility to Abraham's instruction concerning worshiping God alone and living righteously. Think about for a moment, since this is not very far away. Israel's a small place. It's not real big, you know, that Abraham might take Isaac and oversee the valley, and there's all of this scorched earth. And Isaac says, Father, what happened here? And Abraham would be able to explain to him the wickedness that God had to judge and that he had to destroy these places because of the sin of mankind. Jacob and Esau were born before Abraham died. Could Abraham have taken them And shown them the valley and said, sin does this. Do not sin. Serve serve God and him alone. Also, Abraham was God's friend. 
He was God's man. He had a special relationship with God. And that relationship was validated when God took Abraham into his confidence. It was a lifting up of Abraham in a way by telling him what was going to happen. And it validated their relationship. James 2.23 refers to Abraham as God's friend. And how would it be if God had destroyed these cities which were so near to Abraham without telling him, without giving him warning? There really were no positives in keeping Abraham in the dark about this judgment. Could we really see Abraham described as a friend of God if God had not taken him into his confidence in this? There are many blessings. There are many benefits to living in communion with God, and one of them is inquiring insight into his purposes. If we desire to know God, to understand his ways, and to know what he is doing in the world, and in our lives, we must draw near to him in constant communion. Jesus' most intimate teaching to his disciples came the night he was betrayed, and the night before his crucifixion. And in that dialogue, Jesus revealed as much as he could concerning what was going to happen. But one of the most special things that happened that night was he called the disciples his friends. John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his, master, his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. One of the telltale marks of friendship is confiding in one another. And here we see God confiding in Abraham and telling him what he's about to do because they're friends. Isn't that how you know that you're really trusted by someone? Isn't that how you really know that you're really good friends? Is when that other person confides in you tells you their greatest hopes, their greatest disappointments, when they confide in you and tell you of the painful things that happen in their lives and the mistakes they make. You know that when someone trusts you with their life that you are truly friends. You're more than an acquaintance. And I don't think the word friend is used lightly here in Genesis or in John. The word friend means something. There's value to it. Sometimes we think of friends as being a lot less than what is described here. We, we call everybody a friend sometimes, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, I know that guy over there. He's a friend of mine. But you hardly know anything about him. But the word friend entails a closeness and a trust. The second observation from this passage Abraham's reaction to God's revelation. After the two men, quote unquote, left to go down to Sodom, Abraham approached God. Now the Holman translation says, Abraham stepped forward. But I kind of like how other versions say it a little bit better. The NIV and the NLT say, Abraham approached him. The King James Revised and ESV say, Abraham drew near. And the NASB and the New Revised say, Abraham came near. I want you to just take a moment and picture in your mind Abraham as he's walking with these three individuals who represent God. The presence of God is in them. 
And they are walking and they stop. And God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to take care of Sodom. And then two of them leave. And here's Abraham standing for a moment pondering what was just said. He comes close to this physical manifestation of God to speak to him. His action of stepping forward shows intimacy and trust, yet not undue familiarity. There is body language that we can see in what Abraham does. To step forward and to become, come closer to a person shows the, the importance of what you're about to say. It also shows that you have the ability to do that. You're accepted, that you can come within a certain distance. And yet he didn't come too close. We don't see Abraham putting his hand on God's shoulder and going, now listen, I don't know if that's really the right way to go. No, he didn't do that. But you see Abraham drawing near to God to speak to him confidentially from his heart. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now this is not an academic question. This is not an academic discussion to Abraham. He's emotionally involved. He's moved by this revelation with pity towards the condemned. Notice that he never requests that the righteous be removed. He never requests that they be spared. He asks that the city be spared. Why not just say, God, you can't do this. Take the righteous out. Because he's concerned about the wicked people. Abraham had no relations with the men of Sodom. Their evil ways repulsed him. When the king of Sodom offered Abraham all of the goods of the city after he had rescued uh, the people of Sodom that had been taken, captured by the, the kings during the, the war that took place, what did Abraham do? No, you keep your stuff. You're not going to say that you made me rich. He had wanted nothing to do with the king of Sodom or his stuff. He had no relation with him. So where does this compassion come from if Abraham wasn't linked with these people in some way? You know, lots of times we feel a lot of compassion for the people we're close to, but for others we have a hard time drumming that up, you know? But here Abraham has all this compassion for the wicked people of Sodom. Where does it come from? Why does Abraham care? Because Abraham had grown close to God. He had been with God and had begun to take on God's merciful attributes and love. We can't remain the same when, we, when we're growing close to the Lord. We don't maintain the same, but we change to become more like Him. Isn't that what Paul meant when he said that we would, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ? The longer we serve the Lord, the closer we draw on to Him, the more we take on the attributes and characteristics of our Savior. The reaction of Abraham is a testimony to the change that being close to God will have in a person's life. 
And we see the same sort of concern in the prayer that Christ prayed when he was crucified. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why pray for them? Stephen, do not lay this sin to their charge. And when you read the words of the martyrs over the years, the last things they say, time and time again, they're praying and asking God not to condemn these people for the sin of taking their lives. Because they become more and more like God. There are three assumptions that Abraham has uh, as he brings his passionate plea to the Lord. Now, these are assumptions that Abraham has. I'm not saying that they're all correct and accurate completely, uh, but they are his assumptions. First of all, he assumed that God's character required him to spare the righteous and not cause them to suffer the same fate as the weak, wicked. He believed that this was a foundational and unquestionable law of God's dealings. Right or wrong, this was his assumption. This wasn't the same as a widespread calamity such as an earthquake which affects the righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the, the righteous and the, and the unrighteous altogether, the sinner and the, and the saint. Don't think that Abraham is misguided. He knew that the people of Sodom had judgment coming. He was close enough to, to God to know sin brought death. He knew this. He doesn't argue that judgment is unjust at all. He understands that they have earned this judgment that is promised them. His second assumption is he assumed that the righteous were a source of blessing and a shield for the wicked. Where God's friends are interspersed among the wicked, it isn't rare to see God's blessings also fall on those who don't deserve it. Okay? If there were righteous people in Sodom, the city should be spared because of it, was Abraham's thoughts. Jesus faced this argument with a Syrophoenician woman when she came to him at Tyre and, and she said, Lord, my daughter has a demon. Can you please help her? And what does Jesus say? It's not right to give the bread from the children to the dogs. That's, that's a kind statement, isn't it? But what does she say? Yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. You see, the unrighteous, the wicked, benefit much, much of the time when there are righteous people around them. We've seen this principle in Jesus' teaching also that believers are the salt of the earth. And nations which have a very strong influence of a godly community or body of believers will be held back from the depths of sin by that godly influence in the community. And also we see the evidence that nations are blessed when Christian communities flourish in the fact that after the Methodist revival, there was great blessing that came upon Great Britain as they turned to God and they started sending missionaries all over the world. The beginning of the modern missionary movement started there, basically. The move of missionaries to India and China and other places. And God blessed them. And we've seen that continue in the United States as godly people reach out to him to seek his face and send out missionaries to the world. We've seen God bless this nation and keep us safe. I'll tell you what, you go through history and you'll find a lot of coincidences that have to be explained if it isn't God. Tremendous amount of things. I, I, I love studying the wars and some of the crazy, just crazy things that happen in wars that turn the tides of battle 
that you'd say, how did that happen? It's not normal. It's just not possible. You have to attribute it to God. You just have to. God has blessed our country because of the work that we've done, because of the godly people here, because of the missionaries sent out. When a people or a nation seek the face of God and honor him, he blesses, he promises in his word to give blessing and protection. Now the third assumption that Abraham had is that what God does must be recognized as just to men. It's embodied in the question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Just ponder that question and chew on that for a while. It's deep. Now many have used this question to stifle questioning of God's mysterious acts and motives. People wonder, why does this happen? Or why did that happen? And somebody will say, well, you know, don't question it because the judge of all the earth will do right, so therefore it was the right thing to happen. But that's not what Abraham is saying here. That's not what he's arguing. Because if that was his point, everything else he would have said would have been ignored. Or it would have been moot. He would have canceled out. If that was the meaning of this, he would have canceled out his very, uh, his very requests of God. Go. Cool. What was he saying? The thought of God destroying the righteous along with the wicked seemed wrong to Abraham. This question comes from that perspective. It appeared to Abraham, the appearance to Abraham of God bringing down the same judgment on the righteous and the wicked was unjust. Therefore, it can't be what God is intending. Abraham is appealing to God to vindicate his own character by acting in accordance with the moral law that he's placed within the heart of man. If such a thing appears unjust to man, then it loses its moral effect. If God does something in judgment that to us doesn't connect, then how do we say, oh yes, that was right and just? Abraham is implying with his question that God, being judge of all the earth, is therefore bound by his very nature to do nothing that could be pointed to as unjust or inflexibly right. Now again, I'm not saying Abraham is completely right, but this is his assumption. In other words, the question doesn't mean such and such a thing must be right because God has done it. What he's meaning here is such and such a thing is right, therefore God must do it. It's right, God, for you to spare the wicked with the righteous. Therefore, you must do it. You see it is entreaty. Far be it from you. Far be it from you. Why does he do this? Why is this his, his take? Why does he come to God with this question? Because he knows God. He knows God. Third observation is that God's friend has power with God. The relationship between Abraham and God is one that we don't have full information about. We don't know about day to day. You know, we we have a few uh, we have a few places where it says that the Abra- he built a, an altar and he called on the name of the Lord. We have a few places where God spoke to Abraham. We don't know about the day to day. You know, our Bible would have to be a whole lot bigger if it gave us a day to day account of Abraham's life and his conversations with God. 
But if he's called the friend of God, you know it was more than just a few things. He didn't call on God twice a year and be called the friend of God. They were close. Okay? So we don't have full information. We don't know what happened. But our best indication is what James says, that Abraham was the friend of God. We usually think of friendship as something between equals in this world. So how could Abraham be God's friend? It's easier to see the disciples being called friends by Jesus since they lived together, they walked together, they did everything together for several years. But yet in this dialogue that we see in in Genesis, we see the friendship between them, not as equals, but friends nonetheless. Okay, God confides in Abraham. That's what friends do. By confiding in Abraham, he invited Abraham's intercession. He also validated again Abraham and welcomed his requests. He opened the door by bringing the subject up. Now verses 26 to 33, if you want to look at it. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, What if the number of the righteous is five, less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of the 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. And when God had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. God is patient with Abraham's petitions. Abraham makes six requests, bargaining down from 50 to 10. Have you ever experienced that with somebody? They're bargaining? Kids are especially good at that. They want to wheedle you down and bargain. And Well, well if, if this, well, how about this? Well, how about this? And they keep wanting to add stuff and, you know, and they will just work you to death, you know, until you're going, go to your room! <laughs> Do we see that here with God? He's completely patient. He listens to it. God knows there's, there's not maybe a lot. Nobody else. Nobody else. And yet he listens to Abraham patiently. He doesn't butt in and say, you're wasting your breath, Abraham. This is determined. He listens because of the heart of Abraham pouring out to him. And he shows patience. In fact, God grants every one of his requests. Every question, every step along the way, God agreed with him and said, yes, I will do that. God was pleased with Abraham's concern for Sodom and his intercession. He gave him every mercy during this conversation. 
He didn't have to stick around and listen to Abraham. He didn't have to put up with Abraham's questions and personal judgment, but he did it because they were friends. And on Abraham's part, he approached God sincerely and respectfully. Again, that's what friends do. Abraham says two times, now that I've been so bold and even acknowledged that he was dust and ashes, humility before God is what he showed. But he made his bold requests. No one who really knows God is anything but humble. I want you to remember that. No one who is close to God is anything but humble. You see pride and arrogance Take note and beware. Another two times here he begs for God's patience with him. May the Lord not be angry, he said. And Abraham knew that what he was doing would not be allowed to anyone else. But while being humble and reverent before God, he continued to intercede for this wicked people, these wicked people of five cities. And if Abraham didn't do this, who would? There was no one else to state their case or plead for their lives. Abraham was the only one. And Abraham was confident in approaching God. We need to recognize and believe in the efficacy of prayer. God knows himself and the laws of his governments better than anyone else. Let me say that again. God knows himself and the laws of his governance better than anyone else, and he's shown us over and over in his word that breath spent in intercession is not wasted. Abraham shows here by example as one who is jealous for God's reputation, as one who has not sought friendship with the world that God listens to, that those are that God listens to are those who are his friends. God was pleased by Abraham's concern. For the wicked. God was pleased that he cared about them. And Abraham pursuing the right course by, of action by, by trying to intercede for those who are about to be destroyed. Abraham's heart was where God wanted it to be. So he patiently listened and rescued Lot. I don't, I don't know if Lot deserved it, but God rescued Lot. For Abraham's sake. Uh oh. Oh, oh, there we go. Oh. It's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> first Timothy chapter two, verses one to four say, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice here that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving are to be made for all people. Not righteous people, not rich and popular and famous people, not just for people that like us. We're to pray for all people. It says even kings and those in authority, even presidents, even Vladimir Putin, although it's hard for me to drum up a lot of compassion for Vladimir Putin, all men, we're supposed to pray for all men. Oh, man, I hate it when I lose my place on my notes. Okay. And what kind of prayer and intercession is mentioned here? 
that all people will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Is there any other prayer to pray when a person doesn't know Christ? That is the most important prayer that there is for an individual who doesn't know God. Does God glory in the destruction of the wicked? Is the damnation of sinful souls a thing that God desires? We're created for a purpose, for his purpose, to enjoy his presence and to be his friends. And when someone fails to recognize their need for him and instead loves sin and rebels against him, it saddens the heart of God. Just look at Genesis 7 where he's talking about needing to destroy the world. It grieved God's heart, the sinfulness of man and the violence that existed in the world. The peril of ones who refuse God's love is real and needs to move our hearts with compassion and prayers with passion. Matthew Henry wrote, Though sin is to be hated, sinners are to be pitied and prayed for. God delights delights not in their death, nor should we desire, but deprecate the woeful day. So I ask, do our prayers move the hand of God like Abraham's? Think of some time that God answered your prayers in a special way. How was it you prayed? Who were you praying for? Were your prayers passionate? Or were they just the average, run-of-the-mill, daily God bless so-and-so and so-and-so and give us a good day and thanks for this food. When I think about passionate prayers, one instance of prayer that comes crashing to the front of my mind is for our daughter. Excuse me. I get a little emotional. I'll try to get through all this. She had a really hard time dealing with the death of her mother, at the age of six, our remarriage, blended family. She went through life struggling with a level of rebellion, resentment towards the situation. Probably even mad at God a bit, I don't know. Anyway, it came to a head when she was 18 years old. We had taken her to Bethany School of Missions. She felt God calling her to be a missionary. But after being there about a month, she just up and left without telling us and ran off with an unsaved boyfriend. We had a little communication with her after that, you know, some here, some there, not a lot, until at some point she finally cut us off and didn't talk to us at all. We heard nothing from her for a year. We might hear something from somebody else. We prayed for her like our lives depended on it. Passionately, with tears and persistence. Then one day, she just appeared in my office, standing there with our grandson. It was, I was shocked. Sometimes we pray and we think, God's not hearing us. But here she was. Over the next several years, we worked on the relationship to get it back to where we were comfortable and stuff. But then there came a day when I brought up something to her because she had not been going to church. 
I said, Becca, my grandsons, you need to take them to church and bring them up right. And you know, this would be a place where a lot of kids would have said, don't meddle, stop it, step away. But instead, she began to go to church again. Now, 16 years after she walked out of our lives, my daughter is a credentialed minister working with children in one of the large multi-campus churches in the cities. She was credentialed just this last spring. Our God is able to do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think. The friend of God has power with God. Are we friends of God, or are we just acquaintances? To be God's friend takes a sturdy choice of the will. He longs for us to commit to a deep friendship with him, and it's up to us. In life group this last Wednesday, we were discussing Galatians 15, 16, or 5, 16. It says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And this verse tells us to walk by the Spirit. But the meaning of this isn't a one-time thing. We don't walk as a one-time decision. It's a daily deal, staying close to the Spirit, staying close to God. And the, the mood of this verb also is a choice. There's personal choice involved. We choose to walk with God. It's our choice to do so. And it's the same way with being a friend of God. We want to be a friend of God. It's a daily choice. It's something we pursue. It's something we decide that we want to do. It won't happen by accident, folks. It happens because we want it, because we desire it, because that's what God desires for us. One more verse here. James tells us, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. See, the onus is on us. If we want to have power with God, if we want to be able to pray with passion, with power, and have an influence on the Lord, the closer we are to God, the easier that's going to be. But it's going to be our choice to do it. So what will you choose? You see, it's easy for us to get distracted by all kinds of stuff in the world. I have to confess right now, I love football. I love football a lot. Sometimes I read football news before I read my Bible. I hope that that doesn't shock you. But it happens. But God has to come first in our life. Even before football. God has to come first in our life before even our family. When we put God first and draw near to him and be his friend, we will experience incredible, incredible joys, incredible blessings, and we will never, never wish that we hadn't done it. So our choice to be God's friend will have lasting effects in our lives. Let's not simply be God's acquaintances but be his friend. Daily commit to seek that relationship. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Thank you, Lord, that you have made us. You have made us in your image. And you've made us for the purpose of relationship. And that relationship goes ignored in most lives, Father. Most of the people of this world have no interest in you. But Lord, we do know you. I pray, Father, you'd help us to choose this day and tomorrow, every day, every moment, that we will walk with you, that we will talk with you, that we will bear our souls to you, draw near to you, Lord, and understand your ways in a much greater way. Help us to love you as a friend and return, reciprocate the love that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.